Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Pray for was we did not pray for those that have been victims of the the hurricane in the East Coast in New York and in New Jersey. Uh, just to let you know, um, the Southern Baptist disaster relief efforts. We are number two behind the Red Cross in serving, and we are on the ground there serving and helping and feeding and being a presence there. And I just want you to know that um, a lot of Southern Baptist relief. Um, efforts are being done all across the country, especially, but especially when disasters like this hit, we are one of the first to be on the ground, and we are one of the first people the Red Cross and the Salvation Army calls to go to help on the ground. Our world is desperately seeking happiness. Everywhere we turn, there's this hunger for happiness, being happy. Do you remember the song from the 80s, Don't Worry? Be happy. It's kind of a sick song, isn't it? Don't worry. Be happy. This past week, I did an internet search. Just typed in the word happy. I went to Google. Guess how many hits there were on Google? Three billion hits with the word happy. I went to Yahoo. 1.6 billion hits with the word happy on Yahoo. So I went to Amazon.com to find out how many book titles had the word happy in them. Anybody want to guess? Over 43,000 books with the word happiness in it. And as I was doing this weird um, search for for the the word happy, I came across on the internet the Happiness Institute. And if you go to the Happiness Institute, you can go to your happy place and you can get um, self-help and you can can get a a therapist and a coach to help you get your inner child into, into, into gear and be happy. Yesterday we went to Chili's. And on the front of the menu, it says, this is your happy place. So, you know, if you want a hamburger, it's your happy place. Our nation was founded on the desire to be happy. What is the Declaration of Independence state? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our nation was founded on the pursuit of happiness. Listen to some quotes from famous Americans on happiness. This is from Abraham Lincoln. He says, Most folks are about as happy as they make their minds up to be. Edgar Allan Poe said this, Man's real life is happy chiefly because he's ever expecting that it will be so soon. That pretty much sums up the ethos of our culture. We have this insatiable desire to be happy. But when we think about the biblical definition of happiness or joy, it always falls short of what the world is telling us happiness is. Because, you see, we as believers, we live in a different kingdom. We live in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. We are citizens of a different kingdom, and so we have different values, we have different priorities, we have different passions. Everything that we do is is different than the kingdom of this world. And God's kingdom is very backwards, if you think about it. God's kingdom is upside down. God's kingdom is cattywampus. That's a word somebody taught me a couple years ago. Don't know what it means, but it sounds funny. It's shocking to our systems when we think about the kingdom of God. So much so that we as Christians are constantly having to recalibrate ourselves 
in the kingdom of God because it is so shocking. You know, the past two times that I've gone to India, when I've come back to America, I've had to recalibrate because you see in India, they drive on the wrong side of the road. They drive on the left-hand side of the road. They eat spicy food. They speak a different language. There are billions of people there. And so when I come back from uh, America or from India back to America, not only is there jet lag, but I have to recalibrate to, to being in America. My mother went to England last month, and she actually drove up to Scotland and all around the country. And, and she, she said I had to really concentrate on how to drive on the left-hand side of the road. And when I got back to America, it took me a day to figure out to recalibrate so I wasn't, you know, getting into wrecks, driving on the wrong side of the road. As believers that are immersed in a culture that pretty much is pagan, we're always having to recalibrate, to reassess, to rediscover what it truly means to live in God's kingdom, to be citizens of God's kingdom. We need to constantly be thinking about our identity, who it is we are in Christ, and our obedience, what we do for Christ. Now, last week, we concluded our identity sermon series, who we are in Christ. We finished the 50-day spiritual journey, and I'm thankful for for those of you that went through that and, and that it was a blessing to you. And as I was praying about what to do next, I thought that it would be good to do the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount. It would be a good follow-up. So what we're going to do over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas is we're going to try to navigate through pretty much the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, otherwise known as the Beatitudes. You see, we are in a culture that desperately seeks happiness. Desperately seeks happiness. They want blessing. They want happiness. They want their best lives now. And so we as citizens of the kingdom are in a very difficult spot because we have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom because Christ has not come back yet. So how do we live in God's kingdom while we're still here on planet Earth? So this sermon series is called The Blessings of the Kingdom, The Beauty of the Beatitudes. And so we've got to ask ourselves some questions. What does it truly mean to be blessed? Because all the Beatitudes start with blessed are. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it truly mean to have quote-unquote, happiness, if that's the word we're going to use. What does it mean to live as citizens of the kingdom? What, what are the beauty of the Beatitudes? So my prayer over the next few weeks is that we would recalibrate, rediscover the joy of the Beatitudes, what it truly means to be blessed as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But before we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, we've got to do a little bit of background. We've got to lay a little bit of a groundwork. So let's talk a big picture here for for just a moment. The book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. The Beatitudes are in Matthew chapter 5. But the book of Matthew is, is really, Matthew's talking about Jesus as the king. Jesus is the coming king of the kingdom. He's the Messiah. He's the king. And so in chapter 1 of Matthew, you have the genealogy of the king. You've got the king going all the way back to Abraham, who was the founder of the nation of Israel, all the way back to David, who was the ultimate king of Israel. So chapter 1 is the the, the genealogy of the king. Chapter 2, the birth of the king of the kingdom. Chapter 3, you've got the baptism of the king. John the Baptist comes and inaugurates that that Jesus, the king of the kingdom, is now coming, so the king gets baptized. And then in chapter 4, the king goes into the wilderness, and he's tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, and then he emerges out of the wilderness, having been baptized, having been anointed by the Holy Spirit, to start his public ministry. And so the king is coming, and he's going to announce the kingdom in the book of Matthew. 
And so we pick up in chapter 4 with Jesus starting his public ministry, and this sets the context for the Beatitudes. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 17. As Jesus emerges out of the 40 days in the wilderness, this is the first thing that he says. It's very, very important to Matthew, very, very important to the Beatitudes. Chapter 4, verse 17 of Matthew, Jesus says this, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes on the scene as a preacher. He's preaching, he's proclaiming, and he's giving a message. He's saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, why would he say the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Why is the kingdom coming? Why is the kingdom here now? The reason the kingdom is coming is because the king is here. Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm on the scene. I've been baptized. I've gone into the wilderness. I'm starting my public ministry. Now I'm proclaiming to you that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is coming right here in your presence. And I'm preaching that. And the way that you get into the kingdom is you repent. You repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus begins to call his disciples to himself. He begins to call followers into the kingdom. And then let's pick up in verse 23 because we find out that Jesus gets very, very popular. Very, very popular. Verse 23 of chapter 4. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Let's just stop right there. The gospel of the kingdom. Gospel means good news. Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom. Earlier he said the kingdom is at hand. He's going to these villages. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame sped throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea from beyond the Jordan. Jesus is getting very popular. He's got crowds following him. He's coming and he's announcing the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. The king of the kingdom is on the scene. So that's the context. That's the setup for his first sermon in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. So let's just read together chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and read these Beatitudes. With that as the context. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, many well-intentioned preachers have preached the Sermon on the Mount, and they've done some wacky things with it. The Sermon on the Mount is kind of confusing, and if you don't interpret it correctly, it can cause a lot of damage to the gospel. So what I want to do is I want, us to, help, I want to help you understand how do we interpret the Sermon on the Mount? What's the purpose of it? Who's the audience? How do we deal with the Sermon on the Mount? So let's, let's look at a few things here. First of all, we need to understand this very, very clearly. 
Jesus is addressing his disciples. Look there at chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, now there's crowds, right? Crowds are there. He went up on the mountain and he sat down and his, who came to him? His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. He's teaching disciples. This is a sermon to believers. Very, very crucial that Jesus is talking to those who've already entered the kingdom. He's not preaching to non-believers. Now, there are non-believers there. There's the crowd there. There's people standing there and wondering what Jesus is saying. But these aren't requirements to get into the kingdom. Notice that the Beatitudes aren't things that we're supposed to do. Jesus never here tells us that these are things that we're supposed to do. These aren't commands. These are blessings pronounced upon us as those who've already entered the kingdom through repentance and faith. What's the requirement to get into the kingdom? Back in chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus said, here's how you get into the kingdom. You repent and you believe. So those who've repented and believed, those who are saved, you are part of the kingdom. You are in the kingdom. You are God's child. God has chosen you. God has loved you. God has accepted you. God has adopted you. You're his child. You're in the kingdom. And Jesus is preaching to you. But there are those that are standing around in the crowd listening to this. And they're shocked when they're listening to this because what Jesus is talking about on the Sermon on the Mount is very, very countercultural. Doesn't make sense. He's talking about being poor, mourning, seeking for righteousness, being persecuted. These things don't sound very good to the world's ears. So let me just address you this morning. If you're a non-believer here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you just happen to be here and you're listening to what I'm saying, this message is for Christians, but I want you to listen in on this because I want you to see the distinction between those who are in the kingdom and those who are outside the kingdom in hopes that God would draw you into the kingdom so that you could be part of the family of God. But you've got to see the distinction. And so Jesus draws this distinction between the crowds and his disciples by saying this is, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. The world gets shocked when they hear these things. Because what's Jesus talking about? Being poor in spirit. Seeking after righteousness. What does the world value? Being happy? Being comfortable? Being arrogant? Being prideful? Being seeking pleasure at all costs? Not for us who are citizens of the kingdom. Our priorities, our values, our desires, our way of life is totally different than what the world values. Because we are in a different kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So here's number one. This is a message to believers. Non-believers are encouraged to listen in to find out who the identity of believers is, but Jesus is talking to those who are already in the kingdom. His disciples came to him and he's taught them. Okay, here's the second thing we need to understand about the Beatitudes. They are not the be happy attitudes in the sense that they are somehow personality traits that you can generate in and of yourselves. If I just had the willpower to generate these attitudes and just really be happy, don't worry, be happy, right? No, these are supernatural things that only the Holy Spirit can produce once you get saved. Now, here's the, here's the issue when we get to the Beatitudes. There's a very dangerous teaching that's going on in our Christian circles right now. I don't know if you've heard it, but it goes like this. You're saved by grace... 
but you're sanctified by works. Let me say it another way. Oh, yes, I believe you get in by grace. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. you got to have grace to believe. But once you get into the Christian life, it's up to you to live it in your own power. Thank you very much, Lord Jesus, for saving me. But the rest of it, just give me enough rules to follow, and I can do it myself. That's a dangerous teaching. That is not the gospel. We get in by grace, and we sustain by grace. It's not a get in by grace, and the rest of it's up to me to somehow produce this thing in me because I've got something in me to make it happen. Just give me some rules to follow. Just give me some rules to follow. Because if, if, if the Beatitudes here were things that we had to do in order to get saved, and these are things that we could produce within ourselves in order to be acceptable by God, it would be a works-based system of righteousness, and that is not the gospel. We'd be saved by works, and it would not be by grace. So number two, not only is this for Christians, but number two, these are supernatural traits. These are things only the Holy Spirit can produce in you. These aren't aren't personality traits that you can generate. These are God-given things to you in salvation that can only be explained by the fruit of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of grace in your life. Now here's the third thing. These beatitudes aren't just for the special forces of Christians some elite few that have reached this stage of spiritual maturity and the rest of us are lower on the totem pole. Okay, there's not this whole idea that those that are blessed are this super Christian, this super apostle, you've arrived, and the rest of us are way kind of down here. These beatitudes are true for you if you've been a Christian for five minutes or you've been a Christian for 50 years. Now, your understanding and awareness of them may be different, but if you are truly a child of God, these are pronouncements of the king upon you. Again, these aren't things you're called on to do. These are pronouncements that Jesus, the king of the kingdom, is is pronouncing upon you. He's pronouncing a blessing upon your life. So, with this background, what I want us to do is I want us just to look at the first beatitude this morning. The first beatitude, and I want us to to ask three questions of the first beatitude. Here's the three questions. It's very simple. Let's just read it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What are the three questions? Number one, what does it mean to be blessed? Because Jesus says blessed are, and he's going to start all these with blessed are. What does it mean to be blessed? Number two, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that really mean? Poor in spirit. Number three, four, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to possess the kingdom of heaven? I mean, the verse is very simple. Blessed, number one, what does it mean? Number two, poor in spirit, what does that mean? Number three, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, what does that mean? So let's look at the first one. What does it mean to be blessed? Now, where do we get our word beatitude from? It's Latin for blessed. That's just what the word beatitude means. It's, it's Latin for blessed. And, and, and the word blessed, it's kind of become a generic word. What happens when somebody sneezes? What do you say? God bless you. What do we put on bumper stickers? God bless America. What happens when we really don't know how to pray for someone? Lord bless so-and-so. Lord bless this and bless that. We really don't know how to pray, but we're going to throw out that blessing because it sounds real spiritual. Bless this, bless that. We really don't know what it means, but we throw it out a lot. Lord bless so-and-so. Now, in some translations, people use the word happy in the Beatitudes. Happy are the poor in spirit. Now, I understand where they're coming from, but that's very unfortunate translation. Because what does happy mean in our culture? Happy is based upon circumstances. When things are going well, you're really happy. When things aren't going well, you're not happy. For example, let's say that you're on the 50-yard line and you've got tickets to the Broncos game. 
and they're winning by 21 points, and you're happy. But then it starts to blizzard, and you're in the cold, and they lose to, to the Raiders by one point. Sorry, Neil. They lose to the Raiders by one point. You're not happy anymore because the circumstances have changed. I'm happy when the Broncos are winning. I'm happy when the Raiders are winning. You switch. When Jesus talks here about Beatitudes, blessed, it's not a, it's not a feeling. Now, it doesn't mean that feelings aren't involved in this. There's got to be emotions, but it's, not, it's more of a state. It's more of a condition. It could be translated this way. I like this translation. Congratulations to you. Congratulations to you. Why are you to be congratulated? Here's the real issue. Because of God's sovereign grace in your life and saving you and showering you with grace and loving you and adopting you, you are to be congratulated. You are in a position of being blessed. You are highly favored. You are graced. Congratulations to you. The closest thing I can see to this is how Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians. Paul uses the word blessed or blessing. In Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6, Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, so he says he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, and he goes on to tell us what these blessings are. You've been chosen. You've been adopted. You've been lavished with grace. You've been forgiven. You've been given the Holy Spirit. You've been loved. All these things are the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And so the same thing that Paul's saying here, I think Jesus is saying is because of your salvation... Because of what God has done for you, you are highly favored. You are in a position of blessing. You are in a position of privilege. Not because of anything that you've produced. We'll see that in just a moment. But simply because God and his sovereign grace has chosen to do this for you. Remember what we looked at in our identity series. We are chosen, loved, and accepted by the Father. We are purchased and righteous and and forgiven in the Son. We are indwelt and empowered and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And because of these, we've got the smile of God upon our lives, where God looks down upon our lives, and he smiles upon us because we are blessed in Christ. Blessing. Blessed. Congratulations to you. Now, it's significant that Jesus does not begin the Sermon on the Mount with commands. Does he start here with commands? No, he starts with identity goes back to our former sermon series. He starts with identity. Who you are in Christ determines how you live out your obedience to Christ. So he starts here with identity. Blessing. The king, think about this. The king of the kingdom is coming to you, and if you are a Christian, he's pronouncing a blessing upon your life. Blessed are you. Congratulations to you. You are, you are, you are highly privileged. You are in a position of grace and of blessing. That's what it means. Now notice that it's not happiness. Because happiness depends upon circumstances. God's blessing depends upon God and his sovereignty and his providence in your life, whether things are going good or whether things are going bad. So the first thing we see here is that when Jesus starts all these Beatitudes with blessed, he's he's not saying you're real happy because it's all up to your emotions and, and it's all up to circumstances. He's saying, no, you are a recipient of grace in the gospel and because of what God has done for you, you are a highly favored child of God in a position of honor and of privilege and the king of the kingdom is pronouncing a blessing upon you. Not because of anything in you that made God do that, but simply because God and his love chose to do that in his free grace. That's what blessed means. Now let's tackle the second question. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because Jesus says, congratulations to you. Blessed are you if you are poor in spirit. 
Now, if the media or Hollywood or Washington, D.C. or Madison Avenue were to preach the Beatitudes, they might translate it like this. Blessed are the rich, for theirs is the kingdom of this world. But Jesus' words are countercultural. They're counterintuitive. They don't make sense. We need to recalibrate because he says, blessed are the poor. When we hear that word poor, immediately we think, woo, I don't know about that. I don't want to be poor. What does it mean to be poor? Well, that word poor originally meant this. It meant to cower or to cringe like a beggar. It ultimately means this. The Greek word there means to be spiritually bankrupt. To be an abject poverty. To be helpless and to be hopeless in and of ourselves. Now, why is this so countercultural? What does the world value? The world values riches. The world values power, popularity, prestige, all the P words, prominence, popularity, power. The world values being loud and arrogant and cool and hip. Nobody wants to be poor in spirit. Now, I love to watch football as as much as the rest of you do. But one thing that really annoys me, and I'll, I'll just be real honest with you, it's when a defensive end tackles or sacks a quarterback. And they all get excited and they celebrate. You get paid millions of dollars to to tackle that guy. Why celebrate? It just makes me mad. It's like when Shaq used to make a free throw. We're like, yeah, he made a free throw. You get paid millions of dollars to make a free throw. You you look at athletes that get so into themselves. And when they they make a touchdown, what do they do? They go in the end zone and they do their little dance and they spike the ball. And it's all about them. and, And they're drawing attention to themselves. And the world draws attention to themselves. You see, people have this insatiable need to draw attention to themselves. We see it in, in athletes. We see it in movie stars. We see it, we see it even in Christians. We've got this celebrity pastor culture. We've got these pastors, quote-unquote, who are on the celebrity circuit, and they've got these major churches. And I'm not against megachurches, but, but I, I know that you go to their church, and on the side of their church, it's got a picture of their smiling face. And everything's about them, and they want to they promote themselves, and they, have, they, they won't speak at conferences unless there's going to be thousands of people there, and we won't go to conferences unless a certain speaker is there. Let me tell you a little bit about conferences, because I've put conferences on, and I've attended conferences. And it's amazing when you read the, 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 the fine print, a lot of these speakers will not show up unless you can guarantee a thousand people to be there. And I was appreciative of people like Artisertia that came to our church. And he said, I don't care who's there. If there's five or 500, I just want to bless God's people. That's when I'm appreciative. But there's some of these celebrity pastors, and we've put them up on a pedestal to say, you know, we're not going to go to that conference unless so-and-so. Now, dare I say, and this is just, this came off the top of my head, so please forgive me. You can send me emails later on. I think in some churches, let me say this, we may have elevated Beth Moore to a level of celebrity, and we need to be careful with that. Or whoever it is, John Piper, Beth Moore, Chuck Swindoll, John MacArthur, Ravi Zacharias, R.C. Sproul, whoever it is that you follow, just be careful that you don't elevate them to superstardom. That is not healthy. What does Jesus say here? He says, let's be poor in spirit. What does being poor in spirit mean? Here's simply my best definition. It's an overwhelming sense of your nothingness before God. Listen to the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. It means a complete absence of pride, 
A complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. Now, we need to be very careful here. It doesn't mean that we're worthless And it doesn't mean that we're nothing, and it doesn't mean that we don't have value, and it doesn't mean that we're not created in the image of God. It just simply means this. As Christians, we realize who it was we were before and how God has made us now. Who were we before Christ? We were under his wrath. We were rebels. We spit in God's face. We were sinners that went our own way, and we yelled and screamed at God and said, I want my own way. And God reached down in sovereign grace and said, I'm going to take you out of that pit, and I'm going to put you on the solid rock, and I'm going to put a new song in your mouth, and you're my my child now and we look back to where we were and we look to where we are now and we say without Christ I am nothing thank you Lord Jesus for bringing me out of that and making me something that's what being poor in spirit means it means that we understand that without Christ we are bankrupt without Christ we are nothing but in Christ we are blessed when Jesus was addressing the church at Laodicea he said in Revelation three seventeen, for you say I'm rich I've prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's very dangerous when you begin to think, I don't need anything. I've got it all together. I can handle it, God. We're to be humble because God has graced us. Because you see, here's what happens we can begin to be honest with ourselves. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to be something we're not. We realize that that God took us in our sinful state and he saved us. And we can just be real honest and say, without Christ, I'm nothing. With Christ, I'm blessed. A.W. Pink said this, It issues from the painful discovery that all my righteousness are as filthy rags. It is a foundational in describing the fundamental trait which is found in every regenerated soul. The one whose poor in spirit is nothing in his own eyes and feels that his proper place is in the dust before God. Let me ask you a very simple question. What should be one of the chief hallmark characteristics of those who are in the kingdom of God? Humility. Humility. Think about the great people in the Bible that we are nothing without Christ. In John 3, 27, listen to what John the Baptist says. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. That'll humble you. You cannot receive one thing unless God gives it to you. And then in, in verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Humility marked the great people of the Bible. How did Moses respond when God came to him and said, set my people free? What did Moses do? He looked around. Are are you talking to me, God? Are you talking to me? I'm I'm the only one here. Are you talking to me? Moses said, I can't speak. I'm not all that. Why would you choose me to go do that? What did David say when when God said, I'm going to build a house for you? I want you to build a temple. David said, who am I that you build a house for me? I should be building a house for you. How did the tax collector respond in Luke 18? In Luke 18, 13, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Bible says he went home saved that day. Or what about Paul? Do you realize what Paul called himself? Paul said, I'm the least of the apostles. That's Paul. I'm the least of the apostles. How do he make makes us feel? And he also called himself the chief of sinners. 
Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He makes up a word there. I'm the worstest. I'm the foremost. I'm the chief of sinners. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, as the chief, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Here's what being poor in spirit means. We realize that we are nothing without Jesus. That we are spiritually bankrupt that we are helpless, that we are hopeless, that our only hope is to cry out to him. Now here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's the beauty of this beatitude. What did Jesus do? Was Jesus rich in heaven? You betcha. He had everything in heaven. But the Bible says Jesus left the riches of heaven and he did what? He became poor so that you and I could become rich. He humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross. What does Philippians 2, 6-8 say? Who though was in the form of God did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself or made himself nothing. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And here's the paradox. Jesus who was rich became poor so that we could be rich, so that we could turn around and be poor so that we could be rich. Does that make sense? It's upside down. But it's beautiful. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Blessed are the poverty-stricken in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus became poverty-stricken on the cross so that you and I could be poverty-stricken and then receive the blessing of salvation. I love what our friend Artaxerxes had to say about this. He said, He who was everything made himself nothing so that he could make something out of a people who were nothing. Let me say that again. He who was everything made himself nothing so that he could make something out of a people who were nothing. The lyrics to the old hymn, Rock of Ages, ring so true. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I claim. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply the cross I cring. What do we bring to God? Nothing, except for one thing, our sin, our helplessness. And all we can do is cling to the cross. We don't bring anything to God. We come with nothing. But the beauty of the beatitude is that when we come to nothing, when we come with nothing in our hands and we cling to the cross, Jesus says, blessed are you that are poor in spirit. Listen to the words of Isaiah 66 too. God said, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Psalm 34, 18 through 19. The Lord is near to who? The brokenhearted. The Lord saves who? The crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. First question, what does it mean to be blessed? Congratulations to you because God has loved you in salvation. He's given you a new identity. You are showered with grace. What does it mean to be born spirit? I am absolutely nothing without Jesus. 
but in Christ I have every spiritual blessing. But here's the third question. What does it mean to possess the kingdom of heaven? Because notice what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, and the grammar there says theirs and theirs alone. Theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to notice something. Does this mean that we get to go to heaven when we die? Yes. Hopefully you're shaking your head. Yes. But... Notice the tense of the verb. What does he say? There's is. Is that a present tense verb? Last time I checked my grammar, is is a present tense verb. Now I want you to show you something here. Look at Beatitudes 2 through 7. Not the the verses 2 through 7, but the, the number. Blessed are those who mourn for they, what? Shall be comforted, or will be. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the hunger for their license, for they shall be satisfied. And on and on and on. Those are future tense, right? But the first beatitude is present tense, and it relates to heaven. This doesn't make sense. You'd think that Jesus would be saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will go to heaven when they die. But what does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Meaning that you experience, you get to have, you get to possess the kingdom of heaven right now. Now here's the issue that we struggle with as Christians. It's a tension. We are part of the already, not yet. We're part of the already, not yet. Are you saved? Yes. Were you saved? Yes. 2,000 years ago on a cross. Will you be saved one day? Yes, when Jesus comes back. So which one is it, Sean? Are you saved? Will you be saved or have you been saved? And the answer is yes. So which one is it here? Do we have the kingdom of heaven or will we get the kingdom of heaven? The answer is yes. It's the already, not yet. Of course, we don't have the full installment of it now. We have the first fruits of it. We have the down payment. One day we will have the the consummation of heaven. But Jesus tells us that right now the kingdom of heaven is ours. Now, why can he say that? Because back in Matthew 4, 17, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus inaugurated. Jesus ushered in the kingdom. When did he usher in the kingdom? In his death, burial, and resurrection. When Jesus died on the cross and he rose again and he ascended to the Father, he says the kingdom of heaven is here now. Okay, but there's going to be a day when the kingdom of heaven will be here and now. We're not there yet. We live in the already, not yet. Look at what 2 Peter 3.13 says. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Is the new heaven and the new earth here yet? No. Do we have heaven now? Yes. Thank you, Jesus. I don't understand what you're saying. Welcome to the Beatitudes. It's the tension of the already, not yet. We have heaven now. Are we in heaven yet? No, but he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, why does this give us hope? Why does this give us hope in a fallen world? Because we can get very hopeless as Christians looking at, and we could be very hopeless on Wednesday, depending on how the election turns out. We can be very, very hopeless. We can be the most hopeless people on the planet, but but Christians are not to be the most hopeless people on the planet because ours is the kingdom of heaven. We have the kingdom of heaven now. God rules and reigns now. God has set up his kingdom now. Now, yes, there's going to be a day when it's going to be fully consummated and we await for the new heavens and the earth, but Jesus says we have it now. So what does it mean to have the heaven now? Martin Lloyd-Jones again says this, 
The kingdom of heaven is only present in the church in the hearts of true believers and the hearts of those who have submitted to Christ and in whom and among whom he reigns. Why is the kingdom of heaven here now? It's in our hearts because Christ reigns. He's on his throne. And so we can say with confidence, whatever happens in this world, God is still in control. God is on his throne. He rules and reigns. We have the kingdom of heaven now. And because of that, we are blessed. We are blessed. Because what has God done? In Colossians 1, 13-14, he's delivered us from where? From the domain of darkness. And what has he done? He's transferred us where? To the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been transferred out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, here's the point. You can't live in the blessing of the kingdom and not be united in allegiance to the king of the kingdom. Who's preaching this sermon? Is this some detached preacher up on a pulpit just kind of, you know, preaching a little message? Is it even me, your pastor, preaching this message? Who's preaching this message? Jesus. Which makes it very, very awesome because when Jesus preaches a message to you, it's not just a message for you to receive, but it's the king of the kingdom for you to receive. It's not just the message, it's the king giving the message. He's pronouncing these to you. Michael Horton says this, this kingdom is not something that human beings are building. We don't build the kingdom. It's a gift that God is giving. That's why it's called the good news of the kingdom, not the good program of the kingdom. It's the good news of the kingdom. We don't build the kingdom of God. We don't advance the kingdom of God. If you look at the kingdom of God in the scriptures, we're never building it. We're never advancing it. We're never forwarding it. What we're doing is that we're receiving it by faith because the king of the kingdom is giving it to us. Now listen to what Luke 12, 32 says. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you what? The kingdom. It's God's great pleasure to give you the kingdom. God gets excited and joyful to give you the kingdom. So why is this called the good news of the kingdom? Go back to 4.23. What is Jesus proclaiming as he's going around Galilee? He's teaching in their synagogues. What's he proclaiming? The gospel or the good news of the kingdom. Now why is this such good news? Why is it good news to our ears to hear, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why is it good news? Because here's the good news. If you're here today and you have an overwhelming sense of your nothingness without Christ, if you realize that you're poverty-stricken without Christ, if you realize that you are hopeless and helpless without Christ, if you've come to that realization and you turn and you trust in this Christ and you receive the kingdom of Christ, the Bible says you can have the kingdom of heaven now and you will be blessed because of God's grace in your life. That's why it's good news. Jesus alone will supply what we're lacking. We don't, we're bankrupt. Jesus will supply what we need. He will take us out of the depths of our sin and transfer us into the kingdom where he rules and his reigns. That's what it truly means to be blessed. Let's read it one more time. I encourage you to memorize these as we go through them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now there's one other sermon that Jesus preached. Back in the Gospel of Luke, in his hometown, he goes back to Nazareth, his hometown. He walks into the synagogue. He sits down. They just so happen to pull out the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus sits there, and he reads the scroll of Isaiah. He puts it back up, and he says, Today, this this reading is fulfilled in your hearing. Powerful words. The people were amazed. What does Jesus say? Listen to the words of another sermon Jesus preached in Luke 4, 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to what? 
proclaim good news to who? The poor. Does that mean people that don't have money? No, he's talking about spiritual poverty. Jesus is here to proclaim good news to those who are poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Are you, and I've been praying about this all week, that God would give me this awareness. Are you truly poor in spirit? That's what it means to be blessed. That's where you're going to find true joy. That's where you're going to find true blessing and joy in this life is when you come to the realization that you are nothing without Jesus. But in Jesus, he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Do you see your righteousness as filthy rags? Can you honestly say as the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring? I bring you nothing, Jesus. All I can do simply to your cross claim. That's all I can do. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. If you're here today and you've never done that, my prayer and my challenge and my encouragement to you is to cast yourself at the mercy of Christ. Fling yourself at the mercy of Christ. Come to that point where you realize I am hopeless, I am helpless without Christ. My only hope is to go to Christ. And you will find a Savior with arms open wide to receive all who come to him in brokenness, all who come to him in repentance, all who come to him in asking for that forgiveness. Christ will be there. And you can hear these words over your life. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And as you bow your heads and you think about what it means to be poor in spirit, In just a few moments, we're going to sing a song of response. Oftentimes, we don't do this, but we're going to do that this morning. An opportunity for you to respond in any any way that you would feel led to respond. It could mean that you come to the front and just kneel down here and pray on your own. It could mean that you come down and you, you take my hand and you ask me some questions. It could mean that just in the quietness of your seat, you just reflect. It could mean that you sing your heart out because of the song that we're singing regardless of how God leads you to respond, you have to respond when truth is preached. There's no other appropriate response that when the king has spoken, we respond. We respond with obedience. We respond with brokenness. We respond with repentance. But we've got to respond. To walk out of here neutral means that you have a hard heart. I'll just be real honest with you. The word of God has been spoken through the words of Jesus Christ himself. And to not respond is defiance to the king. So spend some time in prayer as we prepare to sing the song, All I Have is Christ, because that's all we can claim. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Spend some time in silent prayer this morning. For you this morning, we cast ourselves at the mercy of the cross. And we are those that say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross, I claim. We want to be a people that cry out, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Thank you for taking us out of the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of your Son in whom there's redemption and forgiveness of sins. We did not deserve it. We cannot earn it. We cannot somehow work for it. It's simply because you are gracious and good and loving. Thank you for being our loving Savior. 
I ask you to stand this morning as we sing.